Welcome back to another episode of City Hall Pass. I'm Kapel Langani, counsel to the mayor of New York City. We created this forum, the first of its kind in New York City, to give you, the public, a unique window into the highest levels of our city government. We interview New York City's finest public servants and get them to open up in a way that is both deeply personal and insightful. And on its best days, we hope that our podcast is equal parts educational and inspiring. And now I want to introduce my two co-hosts today, two brilliant women who inspire me every day, Best Chu and Kate Coughlin. Thanks, Capel. Happy to be here. This is Best Chu. I'm currently Chief of Staff to the Office of the Council to the Mayor. Hi, I'm Kate Coughlin, and I currently serve as Deputy Counsel for the Office of the Council to the Mayor. I want to welcome to City Hall Pass the Reverend Al Sharpton. The Reverend is an internationally renowned civil rights leader, founder, and president of the National Action Network, which has more than 100 chapters across the country. He's been hailed by former President Barack Obama as, quote, a champion for the downtrodden. The Reverend is also the host of Politics Nation on MSNBC, a nationally syndicated daily radio show, Keeping It Real, and a nationally broadcast radio show on Sunday titled The Hour of Power. The Reverend is a disciple of the teachings of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and he's been at the forefront of the modern civil rights movement for nearly half a century. He has championed police reform and accountability and called for the elimination of unjust policies like stop and frisk. He's a native of Brooklyn, New York, and preached his first sermon at the ripe old age of four at the historic Washington Temple Church of God in Christ. He was ordained at the age of 10, and by 13, he had been appointed youth director of New York's Operation Breadbasket, the economic arm to Dr. King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Because of his strong belief in the philosophy of nonviolent direct action protest, Reverend Sharpton founded the National Action Network in 1991 and headquartered the organization in Harlem, all the while serving from 1993 to 1998 as director of the minister's division for Reverend Jackson's Rainbow Push Coalition. The Reverend, of course, has received numerous awards, including the Harold Washington Award from the Congressional Black Caucus, the Mandela Legacy Hope, Success, and Empowerment Award, and the prestigious James Joyce Award from the Literary and Historical Society of the University College in Dublin, Ireland. The Reverend is educated in New York City public schools and attended Brooklyn College. He's also received numerous honorary doctorates from places such as Medgar Evers College, Fisk University, Tennessee State University, Bethune-Cookman University, Virginia Union University, and Voorhees College. The Reverend has also pursued other interests while continuing to preach. In his teens, he established a close bond with James Brown, eventually recording the record God Smiled on Me with him. And in the 70s and 80s, he worked as a youth organizer with boxing promoter Don King. The current mayor, Mayor de Blasio, during the Reverend's recent birthday celebration said of him, quote, every day I call him, he's here. He's there. People want him in one place, another place. It occurs to me that Rev has a kind of Benjamin Button thing going on at this point in his life. He is reverse aging. He's got more energy than he's ever had, but that's because his cause is just. In this episode, Reverend Sharpton talks about growing up in New York City, his journey as an activist, what keeps him motivated to continue fighting for equality and justice, and so much more. We hope you enjoy. I want to give a very, very warm welcome to a New York City legend, the Reverend Al Sharpton. Reverend, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you. Reverend, your speeches and sermons are heard all over the world. During the March on Washington recently, you said, quote, we always had to dream of being what we would not be allowed to be. We are the dream keepers, which is why we come today, black and white and all races and religious and sexual orientations, to say this dream is still alive. You might have killed the dreamer, but you can't kill the dream because truth shall 
shall rise again. Reverend, many African-American leaders, particularly in civil rights, are also prominent religious figures. Can you talk about the intersection between religion, activism, and politics? I grew up in the Black church. And as you said in the introduction, Washington Temple Church in Bed-Stuy. My parents brought me there when I was three. And a year later, I started preaching. And it was the Pentecostal church. They let kids preach. It was a big congregation. It used to be a Lowe's Theater. It's still there. There might have been 900 people in the church when I preached my first sermon. And as I got older, I would preach at other churches. I was known as a Wonder Boy preacher. But for some reason, when I was around 10 years old, my parents broke up. It was a traumatic separation. So I would watch the news a lot. I didn't play with a lot of my contemporaries because it was kind of awkward for them to play with a playmate that their parents would go to church and hear preach. I developed this thing where I would watch a lot of talk shows which was nowhere near the amount you see today. And I'd watch the news. But in those days, you had shows like David Susskind and Les Crane and Alan Burke. I still remember the show. I fell in love with Adam Clayton Powell, who was the pastor in Harlem of Abyssinian Baptist Church and was a congressman. And I was just mesmerized by Powell. And I begged my mother to let me go. They were having protest rallies because they were trying to censor Powell, put him out of Congress. This was 1966, 67. I was 12, 13 years old. And I was going to these rallies. And my mother would make my sister, who was three years older than me, go with me. And I got to meet Powell. I got to know Powell. And I loved Powell. My mother was very concerned that I was going to get caught out there with what she would call the militants. Because a lot of the people supporting Powell were the Black Power advocates of the time. So she brought me to our bishop. Bishop Washington. And Bishop Washington said, I know what to do. And he brought me to Reverend William Jones, who headed Operation Breadbasket in New York, which was Dr. King's economic arm. And Jones introduced me to Jesse Jackson, who at that time was twice my age. And they made me the youth director. I said all that to say, I grew up in a church-based civil rights lineage. Dr. King, Adam Powell, all of these were ministers. And many of the activists in the North, because you had to remember Reverend Jones was from Kentucky, Jesse Border from South Carolina. Many of them were in the South. In the North, many of the activists in my generation were secular. They were more militant. They were more self-defense. Dr. King was not necessarily that popular in New York. This was more Malcolm X's time. But because I came out of the church, I was more aligned philosophically and in terms of temperament with the King movement, even though it was not the most popular movement in my generation. My generation, they were wearing dashikis and afros and fists and any means necessary. And I'm with an organization that was talking about nonviolent resistance. That's how I grew up. But it lasted longer. I think that when you have people that are male or female that are basing their activism, that's why I took you through that explanation, based on their faith, then you are trying to teach people to fight not because it is trending or that it is popular at the time, but you're fighting for what you can't see, but you have the faith to know that it's there if you keep fighting, because that's what your religion teaches you. And some people's activist strategy is based on what is achievable, what they can get their arms around. Others are based on what should be achieved, that is not feasibly achievable in the present. But because we are faith-based, we go for what we cannot perceive 
in the naked eye for what we believe should be. And we'll fight to make that possible. We'll be right back with more from our conversation with Reverend Al Sharpton. But I want to take a second to encourage our listeners to get vaccinated today by visiting vax4nyc.nyc.gov. You can also call 877-VAX4NYC. It's never been easier to get a COVID-19 vaccination in New York City. All New Yorkers age 12 and older are eligible for the vaccine. Those who are fully vaccinated can more safely gather with friends and enjoy other benefits of vaccination. Many vaccination sites in the city no longer require appointments. To find a vaccination site near you, including those that take a Use the city's vaccine finder at vax4nyc.nyc.gov. And remember, even after you are vaccinated, you should continue to wear a face covering and practice physical distancing when in a public indoor space, outdoors in crowded areas, or when attending gatherings with unvaccinated people. Thanks for listening, and back to you, Capel. Reverend, on a daily basis, you motivate and energize thousands of people. How are you able to make each person in an audience feel that your words are directed to them individually? When I go to a platform or stage or pulpit, I always say to myself, what would I want to hear if I was sitting out there? By starting to preach so young, I was always and remain an extemporaneous uh, speaker and preacher. Never use a manuscript. That's why when I started 10 years ago, my television show, Politics Nation, my biggest problem was the uh, reading the cue cards because I never read a speech. <laughs> I never read a sermon. And finally, they just gave up and they just put an outline out there and I just extemporized what you see on television because I, I, I've never been one to follow that. So by being an extemporaneous speaker, you can also think, what would I want to hear? And all of the oratory in the world and quoting poets and philosophers and all of that is good. It impresses people, but it may not move people. And my thing is, am I going to get up here and quote everybody from Plato to Du Bois and show how smart and well-read I am? Or am I going to try to move people toward action or toward further study, whatever the goal may be? So, for example, when I uh, did the eulogy at George Floyd's funeral, I had no idea of what I wanted to say. I said I wanted to say there's a time that has come upon us that now I see as many whites as blacks march. I knew I wanted to do that. And I picked the scripture, Ecclesiastes 3, to everything there's a time and a season. But it wasn't until I sat down in the pulpit of that chapel and looked out there and I saw everyone from regular people to Hollywood stars. They had come in a pandemic to Minneapolis to this regular guy that was killed by police. Why? Why were they there? I'm looking, Kevin Hart is there, Tiffany Haddish is there, the governor's there, and then people that just regular people. And that's what I wanted to address. And that's where it came to me. The reason that George Floyd resonated with so many people is that in our careers and our life and our dreams and ambitions, we always felt a knee on our neck. And what happened to him with that cop? made us think about what's been happening to us in various ways. If we could just get your knee off our neck, I could have been what I dreamed to be. And that's what George Floyd said. And that's what I said. And there were many things I could have quoted from great eulogists of all time, but it wouldn't have addressed what people in that audience and people watching wanted to understand, why does this mean something to me? And that's how I always try to speak. What would it mean to me to be sitting out there at this occasion? 
Reverend, do you think that the death of George Floyd was a true turning point in our country? I do. I think that George Floyd made more Americans of different backgrounds begin rallying around police reform. And I've been around many. You see it go up and then it kind of calms down. I've never seen what I saw with George Floyd as many whites, interracial and intergenerational. And they weren't fighting each other. It wasn't none of the young people saying, you old heads sit down, but the old heads saying, you don't know what you're doing. Everybody was focused. In a pandemic, let us not forget, people talk about this, about the year of, of activism, but in a year where people were coming out at the risk of their own health. When I called at the first funeral for a march on Washington, Martin Luther King III was sitting there in the first row, and we worked together since both of us were much younger. And I had mentioned him on the phone, maybe we need to go back to Washington. Usually every 10 years we do it. You know, we did the 50th anniversary, we did the 40th. He said, you think so, Al? I said, yeah. I know it's only the 57th year, we're not at 60, but I think we need to go. And everybody told him and I, don't do it. It's a pandemic. You're going to be super spreaders and all that. But people started emailing and texting National Action Network to do it. And I'll never forget, I was, I won't say nervous, but I was a little concerned. And the night before the march, I was sitting in the lobby of the hotel in Washington, and a white lady came over to me. Mind you, most of the hotels were closed, so you could sit there. There wasn't that many people staying. White lady walked over to me and said, Reverend Al, great day tomorrow. I said, you here for the march? She looked like she was maybe mid-70s, early 80s. She was an older white lady. She said, yes, sir, I'm here for the march. I said, where are you from? She said, I'm from San Diego, California. I said, you flew in for the march? She said, that's the only reason I'm here. In a pandemic, this is August 28th, and she had a mask on, risk her health. Woman had to be near 80 years old. Then I get in the elevator with Reverend W. Franklin Richardson going up to our room, and there was a white couple, looked like they were in their 30s. And they said, Reverend Al, we're going to hear your speech tomorrow. I said, you here for the march? They said, yeah. I said, where are you from? They said, we're from St. Louis. And I looked at Dr. Richardson. I said, you know, we're going to have a good crowd tomorrow. We end up with 204,000 people. The biggest march of last year, risking their life. We made everybody wear masks, took temperatures. But people come with the risk of their lives. That's why I knew this was a different moment. And I think because of the pandemic, where the news was mostly what you watched, there was no sporting events, there were no distractions. All you were watching is the news, hoping they tell you this pandemic is going away, you can go back to work, go do what you want to do tomorrow. And they kept seeing that film of that knee on the neck. And I think that's what helped cause it. That's why at this moment, we're fighting for federal law to do what the mayor's done here in New York and the state has done, making Eric Garner law. We want that George Floyd uh, federal law, because if we can't get it in this environment, when can we ever get it? You know, something you mentioned earlier that resonated with me is fight for what you cannot see. I find in politics, politicians only fight for what they can see. How do we get politicians to fight for what they can't see? I'll put it this way. Dr. King, he described two types of leaders. He said they're thermostats and they're thermometers. Thermostats and thermometers. Thermometers tell you the temperature in the room. Walk in here, say it's 65 degrees in here. Thermostats change the temperature in the room. They come in a situation and turn the heat up or turn it down. Our elected officials, our politicians need to decide, are you there to go with the temperature of the day, what is popular? Are you there to change the temperature of the day? Had they not changed the temperature of the day, women would not be in office because there was a time women couldn't vote. 
Had they not changed the temperature of the days, blacks and browns and Asians wouldn't be there. So you are there because of thermostat leaders. So how dare you get there and forget how you got there? You were not there because you were that smart. There were smart people before you of your race and gender. They were not allowed to serve. You served because people saw things that weren't there and made it reality. So how do you get there now and become safe? Because if they'd been safe, you would never be in office. So you earlier mentioned, you know, talking about the things that have been barriers to achieving dreams. And you've previously stated publicly that there's a lesson from your mom that life is not about where you start, but where you're going. As a child, where did you dream of going? And what did you dream of becoming when you grew up? You know, I dreamed as a kid, I wanted to be a big preacher. I wanted a big church like Bishop Washington. I wanted to live, you know, a comfortable life as a minister. And then at 12 or 13, when I got involved with civil rights, I wanted to be a civil rights activist preacher. And I modeled myself after my mentors, Jesse Jackson, who never pastored a church and who started Saturday rallies in Chicago that I duplicated in New York. We've been doing 30 years now. I started modeling after Jesse and Adam Clay Powell. So I wanted to be what I have become. You know, there's a song that comes out of one of the Rocky movies called The Eye of the Tiger. And I play that song when I work out every morning. I'm one of these guys get up before doing a workout. And there's a line in there that sometimes things happen too fast. You lose your passion for glory. You must keep the grip on the dreams of the past. You must fight to keep them alive. And that's what I've done. I've held on to the dreams of what I wanted as a kid. So people would say, well, we can give you an appointment to be in this administration or that one. I was close President Obama. I wanted to hold on to my dreams, and I'm doing exactly what I dreamed of being. Reverend, your legacy continues to build day after day. There's no signs of you retiring anytime soon. What have been your proudest accomplishments, and what keeps you motivated, Reverend? What motivates me is that I'm fulfilling what I feel my calling is in life. And uh, that when people feel they can call, whether it's George Floyd's family or Trayvon Martin's or Eric Garner, it to me says that I've been doing what I'm supposed to do. Because I don't care what the right wing rights are said. These people have faith that we're going to do something. National Action Network could be. And when Reverend Jones started me in Breadbasket and Reverend Jackson and people that knew me as a kid say to me, I'm proud of you. That means more than any honorary degree or any award because I consider myself continuing what they did. Because if the elders of your tradition say they're proud, that means you did what you were supposed to do. Others know what they see. They do what you were supposed to do. All right, so it's time for a game. And it's time for the National Action Network's L-Star game. And we've got an L-Star lineup for you today featuring the Reverend Al Sharpton. In this first and last L-Star game, it's one for the fastball, two for the curve. But remember, folks, he only gets to pick one. All right, batters up for this L-Star game. Brooklyn or Manhattan? Brooklyn. Keeping it real or politics nation? <laughs> Probably keeping it real. Running or biking? Running. Peter Lugers or Keynes? Peter Lugers. Okay, James Brown or James Vanderbeek? James Brown. All right. And that concludes the first and last L-Star game. We, we, we want to thank the great Reverend Al Sharpton for taking time out of his immensely busy schedule to join us today on City Hall Pass. We certainly couldn't do a credible show about legendary leaders in New York City without including the Reverend. Well, it's my honor to do it. And thank you very much. 
I want to thank our guest today, the Reverend Al Sharpton, for taking time out of his busy schedule to sit down with us. The Reverend loves New York City, and it was fascinating to hear his views on some of the most pertinent issues our community is facing today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and look forward to talking to you soon on another great episode of City Hall Pass. This podcast is brought to you by the Office of the Council to the Mayor of New York City.